Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord God, we enter into this most holy of weeks with eager anticipation to encounter you, to hear your voice, to know the depth of your love for us, and to experience in a new way this revisiting of these holy events that happened so long ago and yet still affect us today, that you died for our sins, that you rose again for our salvation. And so we pray, Lord, tonight that that would become even more real, even more important, even more impactful to each one of us, that you love each one of us so much that you would rather die than spend eternity without us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us open ears and hearts that are ready to receive, that you would speak through the words of Scripture and our conversation with one another, and inspire in us, help us to receive your Holy Spirit. We pray, God, for relief from any of the things that may be causing us worry, anxiety, doubt, or fear, anything distracting us from this time, Lord. We pray that you would cast it out and remove it from this place and from each one of us in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you bless us each in the ways that we most need it. Guide our time together and we lay this and our lives at your feet. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome. We're going to be in John chapter 20 this evening, verses 1 through 9. This is the gospel reading for this Sunday, which is the Feast of the Resurrection of the Lord, also known as Easter Sunday. And so we're going to read through this twice through, as we always do, first time through. Uh, Act as though you've never heard this story before. I'm sure you've heard all the accounts of the resurrection in all four of the gospels. Uh, So I invite you to listen with fresh ears and act as though you have a blank canvas in front of you, a blank canvas in your mind, and imagine this scene as if it were for the first time. And I invite you to do something that I don't think we often do uh, when we're praying with Scripture. I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to take you to this place. Like invite the Holy Spirit to transmit you back in time to this actual place in your mind. So let's do that together as we read. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. The empty tomb. On the first day of the week, Mary of Magdala came to the tomb early in the morning, while it was still dark, and saw the stone removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and told them, they have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple went out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial cloths there, but did not go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial cloths there and the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we know the scene now. Hopefully you have this image in your mind. We're going to read this a second time. And as we do, this time pay close attention to the words. Remove from your mind anything else but the scene and the words as you hear them or as you read them on the page. And pay attention if a particular word, phrase, or detail just sparks something in your mind. Connects to a memory, something going on in your own life. Again, does not have to be something to theologically interpret the passage or be relevant to the passage, but something more importantly that's relevant to your own life, how God is speaking directly to you. Pay attention and listen for those things and begin to reflect on them. Why this? What are you trying to say to me, Lord, through this detail or this word? Second and final time through, John 20, the empty tomb. 
On the first day of the week, Mary of Magdala came to the tomb early in the morning, while it was still dark, and saw the stone removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple went out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial cloths there, but did not go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial cloths there and the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, reflect back on that passage, John 20, verses 1 through 9. And as you do so, uh, reflect on the things that stood out to you, and then share at your tables. You're welcome to join another table if there's only a couple of you at your table, and just share what stood out to you and why, and any questions that uh, arose in you as you read this, any details that you're curious about. Uh, If you're watching or listening to this later, let us know what those things are. But for those of us here, we'll take about the next 10 minutes to do that at your tables, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion and questions. So... um, a brief kind of summary of a few things on this passage. So this, this, gospel, mess, or this gospel passage, as I said, is, is for this upcoming Sunday, for Easter Sunday. And obviously we're going to read a story of the resurrection, but it's a reminder for each of us, and it's a very important reminder for each of us throughout the entire Easter season, and especially this Sunday, that the Catechism specifies that this is the central doctrine of Christianity. It's the doctrine of the resurrection. Because it's what everything else hinges upon. So if I were to, like, before that statement, if I were to ask you or the everyday Catholic, like, what's the most important doctrine in Catholicism? I don't know if most people would immediately jump to the resurrection. They'd probably jump to the Eucharist, or they might jump to a particular moral or social justice teaching that they're very passionate about. And again, those are both true and good things. But the thing about the resurrection is, if it's not true... Nothing else matters. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, you can throw all of this away. You can't, because he was just some historical figure who claimed to be God and didn't really prove it. But if it is true, then everything that comes with it, every single thing that he said, must also be true. Because it's not like this thing happens every day. This was the first and only time someone self-resurrected in history that a religious leader of any religious institution claimed to not just have a connection to God, but claimed to be God himself and proved it by raising himself from the dead. If this is true, it's the central doctrine of Christianity. And that's what St. Paul says. If you want to see this, read 1 Corinthians 15. But we have this beautiful line in this passage where it says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then empty too is our preaching. Empty too your faith. For if the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. You are still in your sins. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then nothing else matters with believers. That's why it's so important for us to know this. To live this story, and if this really did happen, which we believe, brothers and sisters, it did, that it's a historical fact, it's not some legend that we ascribe to Jesus to make him seem like a great teacher or a powerful religious founder. No, that this proves that he is the God he claims to be. And that in this passage, and in many other accounts that we read throughout we have evidentiary proof that this really did so that, first and foremost, brothers and sisters, is an important thing to remember, because if Jesus rose from the dead, then we are a resurrection people. We are a resurrection people. Pope John Paul II would often paraphrase St. Augustine, and he would say that we are a resurrection people, and our song is always And Pope Francis often criticizes Catholics, 
And where we are at mass, it doesn't seem like we are at a wedding celebration. We have the nickname sometimes in Catholicism of being a frozen church, immobile and unjoyful in our faith. When we should be the first and primary historical witnesses to the fact that this church and any Christian church only exists in the People believe that with such faith, with such concern, did not hold, did not change their minds, did not take their minds, understand the threat of that, and if that is real, brothers and sisters, then that means it's promised to us. And that should change everything. That should change the way we live. That should change the way we carry ourselves. It should spark the joy that we should have when we wake up in the morning and we ask, what do we live for? We live for this life that Jesus promised us, a life of resurrection, eternal life with God in heaven. That's why Easter is such an important season, and this passage is so crucial. And so that's one thing, brothers and sisters. The second thing at least the thing that stood out to me that I wanted to share, and then we can get into some questions, is halfway through verse 8 and into verse 9, where it says, he saw and believed. He saw and believed. And then it says, for they did not yet understand. He saw and believed, and yet he did not yet understand. I think a lot of times we are slow to believe because we want to understand. We want to get everything. We want to have it spelled out for us. Jesus, I want to know your plans for me, but I want like the manual, step by step from now until the day I die. Tell me everything that's going to happen, and then I'll decide if I'm on board. That's often the type of mentality that we have. God, I trust that you're there as long as these conditions are met, as long as my life looks like X or Y. And yet, in the witness of the apostles, even though they saw this miraculous thing happen, they saw and believed what they believed was that Jesus really rose from the dead, but they still did not understand. Brothers and sisters, are we slow to believe because we're waiting to understand? Because as the Catechism says, if you can understand it, it's not God. We are never going to get to a place where we fully grasp and understand who God is and everything that he sought to reveal to us. But we cannot let that make us slow to believe. Notice the action of every single one of the characters in this story. What is the thing that they all do? They run. They run. When we have that spark of faith, when we have that question, we want to pursue Jesus, when we want to grow in our relationship with him, do we run? I think most time we saunter. Maybe we take some breaks. We stop when it gets uncomfortable, when it starts to hurt, when we get those faith blisters. Oh, this is getting kind of difficult. I'm just going to rest here for a while. No, we need to run. And we need others who will run with us. I love this interchange between the disciple whom Jesus loved, which many believe to be John, the person who wrote this gospel. And he seems to be reminding the reader over and over again that he beat Peter in a race. He wants you to know. So Peter and the other disciple went out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial cloth, and it goes on. Peter arrived after him and went into the tomb, and then it continues. The other disciple also went up, the one who had arrived at the tomb first. By the way, in case you forgot, do you have people that you have that playful interchange with, but who are still racing with you on that same journey to Jesus? People who will encourage you, who will inspire you to go faster, to be more intentional. Are those the people that you surround yourself with? It's often said you're the average of the five people you spend the most time around. Do those people raise the bar for you spiritually? Or do we have those friends that we still interact with or those places that we go where we are setting the spiritual bar and it's easy to get comfortable because no one's challenging us? It doesn't mean that everyone you hang out with has to be holier than you, but it does mean that the average amount of our time needs to be with those people who are above average in their spiritual life so that we are encouraged to be the same, that we're all seeking. That doesn't mean we need to be perfect. It means we can pull one another up when they fall, when we fall. We can encourage one another, correct one another. But do we have those people that we're racing with? I think all those things are really valuable things to be reminded of this Easter season because they all spark some sense of joy in us. 
Community brings joy. That playfulness between friends brings joy. The fact that we are resurrection people brings joy. The fact that we are running to Jesus, who is our eternal hope and salvation, that should bring joy. All of those things. And so if you are living your Christian life and it is not characterized by joy, if you walk around as a spiritual grump and the people who interact with you on a daily basis, anyone from your boss to your barista, were to find out that you were Catholic and they would be like, really, that person? They're miserable all the time. Then we're not doing it right. People should know there's something different about us because of the way we live out this resurrection joy. We don't need to wear it boldly on a t-shirt that says, I am Catholic. It should be worn on our face and our disposition by the way that we interact with others, the kindness we have, the way that we serve and sacrifice, our generosity, our love for other people, our willingness to invite them into our lives, to be present to them, to not write people off or be in a hurry. Willingness to live at a different pace and set apart from others. That's what the word holy means, to be set apart. Do we look like everyone else? Because when you look out in the world, it doesn't look that joyful. The way that people act, the way that people treat each other, the headlines in the news. But when you see those glimmers of grace in people, it attracts you. You recognize there's something that person has that I want. Do we exude that same joy? And I think this gospel invites us to consider that. So all that being said, are there any details, questions, things that stood out to you, things that you have particular questions or curiosities about? Roberto. Thank you. Two things, first of all. Yes. Uh, I should have known this. Mary of Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, is that the same person? But yes, yeah. So Mary Magdalene means one who is of Magdala. Yes, yeah. Yeah, just like Jesus the Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. The second one I want to add. Okay, either the she by herself or with other people. Why are they running in the morning? Why are they running up there? It's the, it says the first day of the week. Maybe because the first day of the week it would have been uh, would have been uh, Monday. No, Sunday. Sunday. It was Sunday. The yes. So yeah. Sunday he was killed two days. Correct. Yeah. So they are uh, are they running because uh, they are really looking forward to see that indeed. There is the, the resurrection. Mm, that's a great question. Uh, no, we don't. There'd be no reason to suspect they knew that he would rise from the dead, even though Jesus kept saying that over and over and over again. What I, they're going to do is to visit the tomb because you would visit the tomb within. We talked about this last week with Lazarus or two weeks ago with Lazarus. Uh, it was believed that the soul of the deceased stayed in the tomb or near the tomb for three days after death. And after the fourth day was when the body started to decay and became even more unclean. And so people would commonly make pilgrimage to tombs for those first three days. Now, when Jesus dies, and remember, the, the way days work starts in the Hebrew calendar at, uh, at, du or at dusk, at the end when the sun sets is the start of a new day. So it's not after three days, it's on the third day that Jesus rises from the dead. So Good Friday, he dies before the next day, then it goes into the next day, and then it becomes the third day at sunset on the Sabbath. And it was forbidden on the Sabbath to visit a tomb. It would make you ritually unclean or risk being ritually unclean to come into contact with or be around things that were dead because the Sabbath is all about life and celebrating life, celebrating faith. And so you weren't allowed to visit the tomb. So this is literally their first chance to go and visit the tomb of Jesus. But it's also their last chance because after three days, it's believed that the soul will leave the body and they will not have that last opportunity to kind of, you know, say their farewells and make amends and things like that. So I think they're, they're rushing there. For that reason, there are some gospel accounts that say that they went to anoint the body, but in other in the account of John, right before this, it says Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus already did that when they buried him, and that was more common. You know, when you when you die uh, in the Jewish faith, um, you are your body is washed and prepared, and you are buried that evening, unless you know for any uh, you know serious circumstances, it might be the next ev evening, and that's still true of very of Orthodox Jews today. I mean, your body is washed and anointed, and you are in the ground that night um, so that you can preserve, you know, ritual purity. You can make sure, because once you come in contact with a dead body, you have seven days that you're unclean or impure, and you have to go through your own purification rituals and all of that. So uh, they wanted to make sure that the ability to mourn and all of the practical things that were involved in burial were able to be done so you could simply grieve 
and allow people to come and visit the tomb for those three days, you know, as the, the soul was still believed to be sometimes somehow tethered to the body. Thank you. You're welcome. Great questions. Yes. Uh, what's the significance with the fact that when they saw, is it John or is it Peter who saw the, the linen? Mm-hmm. But uh, what's the significance of there like being like no blood? It's just kind of like linen and then they suddenly just believe because they just saw cloth. Like there's no like sort of like miraculous image or sign that shows, you know. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so it doesn't say there's not blood. It just says that the linen is in a separate place. It's rolled up in a separate place. And the way that uh, bodies were buried is that when a body was, was like taken off the cross, especially if someone died in a very brutal way, but also if someone died in any ordinary way, you would put a head cloth called a sudarian over their head so that the image of the dead person's face would be kind of protected and it wouldn't you know, provoke you know, intense emotion. You kind of just, you know, kind of like when you see in movies, if someone dies, they close their eyes. It's kind of that protecting their dignity and allowing them to kind of appear to be just at rest and at peace and death. So their head would be covered. That's the head covering. Then their body would be prepared. Their head covering would be removed, put in a separate place, and then they would be covered with the burial shroud. And what's interesting about that is that we, we uh, or at least tradition holds that we know what these two documents are or what these two artifacts are and where they are today that the Sudarian is, is the Sudarium of Oviedo. It's in Spain, the head covering of cloth, of the, the head co- cloth covering of Jesus. Um, and the other one is the Shroud of Turin. And they've done studies on both of these. And what's interesting is that the studies, if you do a 3D map of the figure and the head, especially because only the, the Sudarian only covered the head, the 3D uh, map where the injuries are and where the blood stains are, it matches from the Sudarian to the Shroud of Turin. But the image that we find imprinted on the Shroud of Turin uh, due to an intense, a very intense, beyond all of the uh, electricity capable on Earth today, uh, was required to produce the uh, electromagnetic or ultraviolet uh, image that's a negative on the uh, Shroud of Turin of Jesus' body. Uh, that is not on the Sudarian because it was taken off. So we see that we're on the same body if you do a 3D map of all the wounds, but they don't have the same uh, ultraviolet imprint because one was in a separate place. So what we can study scientifically today about these two artifacts aligns with this the simple detail that one was over here and one was not. Now, another detail that's important about these is that when, so, when a body was anointed, it was coated in myrrh, and myrrh is very sticky. It's meant to bind the burial cloth to the body, like you're super gluing and basically mummifying this body. And so for a burial cloth to still be there shows that something unordinary happened. It doesn't just fall off. It, yeah, it can't just fall off. So if Jesus' grave had been robbed, you know, robbing a grave is a serious offense, punishable by death at this time. The robbers are not going to sit there and be like, okay, you go watch, and we're going to spend a few hours slowly peeling this off. Like they would have just taken the body and ran. So the fact that the cloth is rolled up and separate, and it's not just left in a hurry, it's rolled up, like some, like Jesus literally made his tomb bed and just like put it there and then like as he, after he rose from the dead, like that's significant. So the linen is a historical piece of evidence, the way that it's reported that Jesus really rose from the dead. And the fact that the stone, you know, is another one that's mentioned in here. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says it was a huge stone. In the Gospel of Matthew that we read last week as well, we hear that there was a Roman guard placed on the tomb, a Roman seal, meaning two to four Roman soldiers were to guard that tomb at all times. And if they broke that seal, if anyone touched the tomb or if the body was taken, those soldiers were held accountable and punishable by death. So they would not have left their post unless maybe they were frightened by the earthquaking and angels appearing saying that Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know, maybe. Um, And so they're obviously not there anymore. Something significant, miraculous has happened. Um, And if someone had stolen the body, let's play this out, okay? Let's say the the Romans had stolen the body. Well, that's exactly what they didn't want to happen and why they allowed the Jews to secure the tomb because they don't want to start an uprising. They don't want anyone who's a threat to Caesar coming. So why would they steal the body, provoke a potential riot or rebellion, give more credence to this person who was considered a blasphemer, a zealot, you know, someone who was causing dissension in the Jewish community, why ruffle feathers? If it was the Jewish leaders, they have a lot of the same issues if they were to take the body. That's the primarily their concern. They say Jesus's followers said he was going to rise from the dead. That's the last thing we want to happen. So they'd also be ensuring this wouldn't happen. 
Jesus' followers, why would they, how would they benefit if they stole the body? Okay, so maybe they get to ride on this myth that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, it didn't gain them any wealth. It didn't gain them any influence. It led all of them to the very painful martyrdoms and deaths. Peter was crucified upside down. Uh, Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Uh, Thomas was speared to death. Bartholomew was flayed. His skin was peeled off his body. John was put in a boiling pot of oil and survived. They all died these horrific deaths, and none of them, none of them at the very last moment when they were being pressured to just say that Jesus didn't really rise, just say that he wasn't the Lord. None of them said, okay, it was all a joke. Okay, we buried his body, or we stole his body. Okay, it didn't really happen. They all held to it. Now, no matter their education, no one, however smart or uh, ignorant they may be, is going to die for a lie or something they know to be untrue. They wouldn't, especially if there's absolutely no benefit. Absolutely no benefit to themselves. They were completely humiliated, persecuted, sought after by religious and Roman authorities their entire rest of their lives. So no one had anything to gain. And yet, all of the details are in place to show that something supernatural or out of the ordinary happened and Jesus' body is no longer there. No one has ever claimed to have the remains of Jesus. And the more and more we study those artifacts, the Sudarian, especially the Shroud of Turin, incredible scientific discoveries are being made over and over and over again. You may have heard, you know, back, you know, decades ago that it was a medieval forgery. That's because the conditions of the test that were done were not done properly. The samples were taken from a part of the shroud that had been damaged in a fire and were repaired with more modern fibers. But when you take the test accurately, which has been done numerous times since, it contains pollen fibers that date to the time of Jesus in that region in Judea. It's consistent with the historical type of artifacts that we have from linens and shrouds of that time. And it has scientific and supernatural evidence of something happening that, again, exists, uh, exuded a like gigatons or gigawatts of ultraviolet uh, light to imprint this body in a negative on the image of the shroud, which no amount of modern power or technology combined on Earth could replicate. It would take that much energy. It's basically the energy of a few of our sons to require this amount of energy to imprint this. And what's interesting, I'm, this is the last thing, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but it's really cool physics. So um, I won't get into the kind of the physics about how you know, they, can, they can read this, but if you, if you look at the way that the, the uh, radiation and ultraviolet particles are displayed in the, uh, displaced in the linen, they actually form a three-dimensional model. So it's not it's it's as if the linen like rested down over a three-dimensional model that simply collapsed or rose up through it. And when you map it on a computer, it's not just a flat image of someone's body. It's actually if you were to take an ultra slow motion image of someone and you could see them here and then here and then here and then here, it's almost like a motion capture image of Jesus raising through the cloth. And you can see multiple layers of the same image. It's incredible. So a while back, we had Father Robert Spitzer here give a whole talk on the scientific analysis of uh, the Shroud of Turin, and it's still on our YouTube channel. So if you want to learn more about all the nerdy scientific cool stuff and facts of physics about it that's backed up and all the studies that, that he references, you can go find that talk on YouTube. But little, there's a little snippet for you. Yes? I, I also just, I love the idea of someone in the Middle Ages having that kind of technology. It, it almost takes more faith than somebody just coming back from the dead. My, my question, though, is about the, the actual, is there a significance? We were wondering about the, the rolling of the cloth mm. and it being kind of set aside. I, I vaguely remember in high school someone saying it was something to do with like a meal ritual or something like that. I oh, interesting. Yeah, that I don't know. But there are very meticulous rituals to how you lay out a Shabbat table or how you lay, over, lay out a Passover meal, how the cloth is rolled and unrolled. And so I wouldn't be surprised. You know, I've never heard it in reference to this, but that would make sense. So, yeah. Yes, Matt. They're not all in the Bible. They're all recorded in uh, church history. And so you actually can find um, the list of everywhere uh, the apostles' remains are buried, except for Judas Iscariot, obviously. His remains were never kept. Um, you know, you can find where the potter's field is geographically today, where it's believed he was hanged but, and buried. But um, there are churches around the world that hold all of their remains. Uh, the only ones we don't have, obviously, are Jesus and Mary, because Mary was assumed into heaven, and no one has ever claimed to have her remains and authenticated them either. So, uh, but all of the other apostles... 
probably even early figures in Scripture like Mary Magdalene, I would assume, because um, we know that after Jesus ascended, she went, uh, at least Eastern tradition holds, that she joined St. John and went to e Ephesus to take care of the Virgin Mary and, you know, to ensure that she was provided for in her older age. And then she was believed to have died there in Ephesus. So her remains may be somewhere there as well or in a church, you know. I've never looked that up, but I, I think I think we know where her remains are, or at least some relics of her. I've seen relics. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, I was looking at Luke, and some of the other Gospels don't mention John being there at all. Mm -hmm. They have a completely different order. The order is the uh, angel or angels came down, frightened the centurions, mm -hmm. and leave. They appear to Mary Magdala, and she knows their angels, and she goes and tells the, the apostles, and mm -hmm. they believe her probably because she's a woman. Mm -hmm. Peter is the only one with women, according to Luke. Mm -hmm. John isn't mentioned anywhere in any of the other Gospels. Yes. John has a completely different order of when the angels come. Mm -hmm. and, and it also says, and, and he believed. And my question is, what did he believe? Because the next sentence says they didn't understand the resurrection. So I don't know what he believed. Yes, uh, that's a great question. So the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're more, especially Luke. Luke is most concerned with presenting the most accurate historical depiction of the events that happened according to eyewitnesses. John was written many decades later, maybe not many decades, but, you know, five to ten years to 40 years later. Just kind of depends on how you date it. But, you know, within a generation after. But the concern of John is to communicate that, yes, this Jesus that you now heard historical testimony about really did live, he really did perform these miracles, but his concern is, and this Jesus was the Son of God. And so he uses certain language and arranges the events in a certain way so you will notice certain details. And he even puts this figure of the disciple whom Jesus loved, like we often assume that's John, it could be an archetype for us. Like, we're all the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he could be inserting a kind of transient character into the story that we could all put ourselves in the story in these different scenes. But the reason why he would do that here is because at that time, to prove that something happened in a court of law, you needed two male eyewitnesses. Two male eyewitnesses. And because that may not have been preserved in the other gospel accounts, he's maybe adding it here to communicate some truth and validity. He doesn't need to do that because elsewhere in Scripture, it's referenced that there are more than 500 eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. Uh, and he at one time appeared to over 500 people at once. And that would have been more than enough in a court of law to prove that Jesus had risen from the dead. But in this instance, he may be adding that detail for you know, dramatic effects so we could insert ourselves into this scene and also for historical reliability to show that there were two witnesses. Um, maybe because they just weren't significant to his purpose. You know, they're, they're more historical details that Luke and Matthew and Mark had already recorded. His concern is, I want you to believe in reading this that Jesus was the Son of God. He says that at the beginning and he says it at the very end, multiple times uh, at the end. So that's why the gospel writers will emphasize certain things, arrange things in a certain way. So if you're looking for the most historically reliable in terms of sequence, I would argue that's most likely Luke because of the way he writes in the very beginning that he's set out to research um, these things accurately anew, looking for eyewitness testimony. Um, and because he was a doctor, he was a Gentile, he didn't have the same uh, desire or necessity to include certain things about Jewish practices that he didn't know. He didn't shy away from including stories of other Gentiles that Jesus interacted with. And so I, I probably, I'm one to think that his has the most historically, chronologically accurate, but it doesn't mean the other details of the other Gospels are untrue. It just means they're being emphasized in a different way for a particular purpose. So what does Probably is it reference to belief that he is divine, that Jesus is divine. Something supernatural happened. But because a resurrection had never happened before, probably not something that they were expecting. There are references to resurrection in the Old Testament, three or four that I can think of off the top of my head, but um, the way in which that was being anticipated, especially in association with the Messiah, was something that was still very much misunderstood, to the point where Jesus directly told the disciples three times, like, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise from the dead, and it's just like, like, they just don't get it, you know, no one had ever done that before, you know, 
So if I was up here telling you like three times, like I'm going to turn into a purple cow tomorrow, I'd be like, is he speaking metaphorically? You know, or is it just like, and then like literally turn into a purple cow and be like, whoa, like what is going on? You know, like, so it's kind of like that. It's just a concept that has never happened that, you know, they wouldn't, wouldn't be expected to believe up front because they had no previous experience or evidence of something like that happening. Yeah. Would that kind of be what it, uh, what it says in the scriptures where it says that if you have the same taste the size of a mustard seed, right? Like something like that might confound you, but if you just have some faith, then I don't know if that's. Yeah, that reminds me of, I think I've referenced this here a few times. Um, I think it's Fulton Sheen who said, um, or it may have been. Um, John Henry Newman, um, a thousand difficulties do not add up to a single doubt. That you can have difficulties in understanding, like, oh, you know, what are these different nuances? Why does John do this or that? But do they provoke doubt that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Well, no, we have so much historical evidence and reliability, eyewitness testimony to that very claim. Why did Christianity, you know, a small band of misfit Jewish men who had no political or religious uh, authority or help institutionally become this worldwide religion that still exists 2,000 years later. We have incredible evidence that this really happened. So, yeah. Yes? I was just going to say, too, earlier in John, during the Last Supper discourse, he says something like, it's better that I go so that the Holy Spirit will come and mm -hmm. remind you everything that I have taught you. Yes. So it's very clear that he's 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 aware that they're forgetting or or... I don't even know if we would say forgetting, being prevented from remembering certain, mm -hmm. certain features of this public ministry until after, even after Pentecost. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? As you were just sharing, I just had the wildest realization about the other thing that you brought up about the unrolling of the cloth. Because you were mentioning earlier in John, and earlier in John also in the priestly prayer, Jesus says, um, I am going to prepare a place for you. For in my Father's house there are many rooms. And that language is marriage language in Jewish culture because the husband would betroth himself to the bride that could not consummate the marriage or move in together until he went to prepare a home for his bride. And once that happened, as part of the marriage ritual, this might be a little TMI for you, but I think it's really uh, interesting to note, they would enter into the marital bed and to prove that the uh, bride was virginal in that instance, the once they consummated the act, there was usually blood involved. The father would take the bridal cloth from the bed as proof that they'd consecrated, uh, they consummated the marriage and that the daughter's dignity was intact in case that came up as an argument later. And what do we have remaining after Jesus consummates his final act with us to prepare a place for us with his father, but a linen rolled up that is covered in blood? Might, might weird you out a little bit because of the sexual imagery, but it's also profoundly intimate and romantic in the way that Jesus is going to prepare. And that's how Jesus presents himself as the bridegroom to us, the bride of Christ. And so that same Jewish wedding Im imagery of the marital bed and the process of being married and creating a home for us, Jesus finishes at this moment of resurrection. Yeah. And then on the cross, it is consummated. Yes, it is finished. Yeah, consumatum est. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And one kind of really weird thing is people saving this cloth for mm -hmm. centuries. And if you look at it before photography, it doesn't look like much at all. No. It just looks like a long thing with a bunch of stains on it. I mean, you really don't get the feel at all that it was even on a human. Yeah. But then when you see it, when, 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 the, when they reverse it with photography, show the negative, mm -hmm. then you see it, you go, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like, have you ever seen it or a replica of it? It looks like someone took used way too much material to try and make a really bad version of a Rorschach test. Like, they just tried to make an ink blot with, like, red ink, and it just and it just looks this weird symmetrical image. Um, and, yeah, it's only when you see the X-ray or the negative or the ultraviolet, you know, scan of it. Yeah. Yeah, and why would anyone keep it if it wasn't really the historical cloth of Jesus, you know? This would be easy to just throw away, you know? Yeah, yes. Well, I mean, yeah, rising from the dead, he's absolutely in a different world, yeah. But this separation between, you know, there's also separation between the head and the body, the cloth that covers the head, the cloth that covers the body. The head, who is Jesus Christ, is now separated from the body, us, the body of Christ, 
you could certainly, you know, infer that imagery too, and that he's coming back to reunite both. So, yeah. And there's also the historically, um, you know, the traditional cloth that uh, Veronica wipes the face of Jesus on the way of the cross. That's a separate cloth as well. I can't remember what it's called or where it is, but it's more of a tradition or a legend that it's a cloth that's held maybe somewhere in France, if I'm not mistaken. Do you know, Roberto, where it is? No? Um, yeah, I think it's somewhere in France. I, I might be mistaken. But it's, that's a less reliable artifact than these two because these have been much more scientifically studied. So, yeah. Yeah. My dear, yes. Um, so I find the end very, like, they return home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Lord just rose from the dead. And so I know, like, you know, it says like, later on they're all gathered in one house. Is mm -hmm. that where they're going at this point? Are they all huddled together? Yeah, I would imagine that meant back to the upper room or maybe to Bethany. But, um, you know, home for them, you know, I don't think any of them lived in Jerusalem, you know, at least how the stories we know of those that are more, you know, um, prominent of the, of the apostles, they're all from Galilee, from Capernaum, from, you know, places up there. So, um, yeah, home probably meant the place that they had been staying. And, you know, it was a time of, you know, still continued fear and persecution. They had just crucified Jesus and they were having very hostile attitudes toward anyone associated with him. Remember Peter, you know, around the fire and the maid says, you were with him too. And it starts to create this commotion uh, that causes him to deny Jesus because he's afraid for his life. So they're still probably very much not only afraid, but experiencing probably a sense of like PTSD, grief, survivor's guilt, like we could have done something, we abandoned him. You know, Jesus said at the last supper, one of you will betray me. I think all of them thought it was them. You know, because none of them were there except for John. You know, they all were probably like, it was me. I could have done more, especially Peter. You know, so I think they're probably just sulking in their guilt and in their grief and really not knowing what to do next, you know. And, and this may have been a, a deeper moment of despair. Great, our Lord is dead and now his body's gone. You know, like that run could have been in desperation, like, please not this, please not another thing. You know, not after all we've been through, you know. And so maybe what they came to believe was the eyewitness testimony of Mary Magdalene, that the body was gone. But they did not yet understand what was really going on. Yeah. Um, so I guess towards the end of this, and I guess maybe we could even infer when Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, uh, and in the other accounts that she was weeping before the tomb, mm -hmm. both before and after, because um, I saw I saw a note in a commentary I was reading about how it relates to Psalm 55, and there's a there's a, a line in there that says, "One cry unto you and." My enemies are driven back. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, is there any sort of uh, importance or vindication to, you know, the tears of the penitent, to the tears of Mary Magdalene, mm -hmm. and that importance to the actual resurrection, God vindicating, driving back the enemies, driving back the enemy of death, conquering death through the tears of Mary Magdalene? Or Yeah. I mean, it, it speaks to the gravity of what it should inspire in us. You know, this should this should affect us so deeply that we should be inspired to those same tears of penitence. You know, there's a great, I think it's a it's an artistic depiction. Depiction, um, Lynn, you might know this one. It's it's Mary Magdalene in the garden um, in the garden, and you can see the devil depicted in the rock watching her encounter with Jesus. There's like a dark man in the background, or or maybe I'm misremembering, but it might be like a chiaroscuro thing with Jesus's face where he seems kind of obscured. And it's, that's why she can't recognize him. Like, I think it's early Renaissance. I can't remember. Yeah, I'll have to look it up. But um, it's a really beautiful painting. But um, it, you, the distraught nature of you know, Mary Magdalene's disposition um, is really communicated in that picture. But what I think it also lends itself to is the fact that um, in this scene, and you'll, you can read this in the verses that follow when he appears to Mary Magdalene in the garden, that uh, commentators or, and church fathers have often pointed this as a reversal of the Garden of Eden. Because Jesus is ironically called the gardener, right? They're in a garden, setting right what originally went wrong in a garden. And who's there? Jesus, the new Adam, and Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene is a representation of all that culminated in the sin of Eve. The sin of Eve and Adam, but the one that is commonly attributed to Eve disobeying the serpent and then asking Adam to join her. And what's interesting is that in the, you know, in the punishment in Genesis, what's the punishment that's due to Eve as a result of original sin? Pains and childbearing, right? Sorry, ladies. 
you know, that's where it came from. No, but the interesting thing in the translation of that is that we often think that means that it's the pain in childbearing, uh, but that pangs word and the word for childbearing in the original Hebrew actually has more to do with what might be communicated as infertility. And that makes sense when you see throughout the stories of the patriarchs how many women are begging God for a child. Sarah, Hannah, um, you know, all these women who come to God because this fruitfulness they were promised in the garden is now wrought with tears because there is no fruitfulness allowed. And Mary Magdalene in some way is encapsulating that in this moment, recognizing there is this feeling of hopelessness and fruitlessness that this abundant ministry is now over and she's weeping and that penitence shows this kind of ache that we have for the Garden of Eden. And what happens right after that? The garden, in the garden, that is restored. And Jesus makes that new. So that's a great question, yeah, and a great thing to, to be reflecting on. You know, does that really spark in us the same emotional depth and desire to repent of all that Jesus did for us, despite all that we do or don't do in response to him? Other questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes, sir. Um, uh, just my product, I guess, with discussion. Um, at the San Diego Retreat Center in mm -hmm. Colorado, yes. uh, they have a Shroud Center. They do. And it's open on uh, Good Friday. Um, mm. and they have a presentation with photographs of the shroud, or, and, and, uh, uh, and apparently it's supposed to be a, a pretty uh, uh, spectacular, uh, spectacular uh, interaction. Yeah, anyone ever been in that center before, the shroud center? It's really interesting. It's a small little room. And I've given talks in there and led worship in there during adoration. So like Exposition of the Blessed Sacrament in there with music. And there's all these shroud displays around. And they're in big light boxes. And so you can turn on these light boxes and an image of the shroud is like illuminated. And then you can turn another light and it shows you the x-ray image. And so it's like right there close up and you can see it all around you. There's all these cool little you know, scientific displays or versions of the image in this tiny little building. Maybe... You know, not even, it's probably the size of one of our classrooms upstairs, or maybe the fireside room upstairs, if you've ever been in there. Um, but it's, it's a pretty small room. Um, but yeah, they give talks and stuff there. So yeah, I encourage you to go check it out at some point, if, if not this Friday. Because it's uh, Santiago Retreat Center. It's up in Santiago Canyon, kind of right where the 261, 241, all of that meets together. <laughs> My wife knows I'm terrible at directions. So like, this is, this is the best I can give you, just... Look up Santiago Retreat Center, and uh, you will you will find it. So, yes, <laughs> there's a great uh, there's a great Stations of the Cross hike there as well, an outdoor Stations of the Cross kind of pilgrimage hike um, that would be great to go on Good Friday. So anyway, we have about a few minutes left. Any closing thoughts, burning questions, anything that stood out to you that you want to share, or anything else you're curious about? I feel it. I feel there's someone who wants to ask a question. Yes? What if the 11 Peter? Probably because he knows Peter's in charge. You know, this is another historical piece of evidence that Peter is, you know, the leader of the apostles. John is believed to be the youngest. Um, this is why often in, uh, in medieval art or Renaissance art, uh, especially depiction of the Last Supper, people will be like, there's a woman next to Jesus. That's the woman he's married to. No, that's John. Poor John is depicted as a woman because the younger you were, the more effeminate your features were depicted in art, especially during the Renaissance. And so if you ever see religious art, you're like, who's that girl? It's John. So, um, yeah, he was the youngest, uh, believed to be probably about 12 or 13 years old when Jesus called him. Um, and all the apostles probably somewhere between 13 and 25 or 30. Um, not the old bearded men we often see depicted in icons. That obviously happened later. That's how age works. Um, so, but uh, not at the time of Jesus and that time of their ministry. It was, it was a young, scrappy band of young adult men, kind of like we often have gathered here, you know? So this is, uh, this is more uh, biblically accurate than some icons that we have. So maybe after this, we'll, we'll, we'll do a, a Last Supper shot or something. So, dibs on John. No, I'm just kidding. So... <laughs> Um, but uh, in closing, I think uh, a reminder, a reminder, it, it, as much as we can dive into scripture and really just get interested in a lot of these facts and, and theological nuances and ways that scripture has evolved and how it contributes to like our faith, really, it comes back to the fact that it all hinges on the resurrection. If Jesus really rose from the dead, it changes everything. It cannot be refuted. It cannot be denied. So if you have difficulties with church teachings or with things in the church, that's okay. Come back to the resurrection. 
come back to the resurrection and recognize, okay, there is truth here. There is real evidence that this really did happen, that Jesus really did exist. There's no historical reason, actually, based on the evidence we have and extra-biblical historical accounts that record Jesus living too, that anything else is a better explanation. This is the best explanation for what happened. And if that really happened, it changes everything. And so does that spark us with joy? And does, do we surround ourselves with those who also carry that joy and compel us to run faster and faster and faster toward the Lord? That, brothers and sisters, is a remedy for a joyful life. Not everything that the world promises, more money, wealth, expressing yourself in this way or that. You know, the world has a lot of good to offer, but the highest good that we could possibly experience is that journey and that race after Jesus our Lord, who only, he's the only one who has what we truly desire. He's the only one that can fulfill those desires in our hearts. And when they are fulfilled, when we allow him to do that, the joy will be so apparent that people won't even have to ask. They will know that we are resurrection people and our song is hallelujah. Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, thank you for this group of people, this parish, this community. Thank you for this time in your word. We pray that these reflections, conversations, and um, these words that have been shared would be written on our hearts and would burn within us this week. That you would challenge us to respond with deeper joy and faith to the resurrection. To really consider the doubts and the difficulties we may have and see how they pale in comparison to the truth of the resurrection. Help us to trust in you even when it's difficult, even when we don't understand that we can still believe. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help our unbelief. Help us in the way we are still struggling with sin, struggling with the promises or the lures of the world, struggling with the ways that we see ourselves, the ways our lives should be in our own mind, and allow us to surrender and let go so that you can fulfill us, so that you and your resurrection can give us new life. Bless us in this holiest of weeks. Help us to enter in, to let go and step aside from the pace of the world, to be set apart this week and enter into these holiest of moments as we reflect on all you have done for us, to suffer and die for our sins and to rise so that we one day too can rise and live with you in eternal happiness in heaven. We pray all this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.